the state of the martial arts research discipline. Hi, this is Andrea Harkins at themartialartswoman.com. You are exploring the culture, adventure, and impact of martial arts with Sifu T.W. Smith. Welcome to Kung Fu Podcast, where we explore the culture, the adventure, and the impact of martial arts. I'm your host, T.W. Smith. If this is your first time to Kung Fu Podcast, welcome. You're in the audience of some of the finest and sharpest martial arts in the world. People that put in a great deal of sweat and a great deal of effort to honing their craft. In episode 196, Swimming in Quicksand, we looked at Professor Paul Bowman's argument of the inevitable trap that academics fall into when they set a line to define martial arts. Then he walked us around that trap with the question, why even draw the line? Well, Professor Ben Junkins does a review of one of his peers, Kai Filipiak's essay, where he's discussing the state of the discipline. And the discipline is referencing the martial arts research discipline. As we look into the academic research into the Chinese martial arts, Ben is very complimentary of Professor Filipiak's work. He refers to him like a bright spot among many of the research reads. Filipiak is a historian and professor from Germany and specializes in Chinese military history and martial arts. He's also a teacher at the University of Leipzig and has written a number of pieces, with published work going all the way back to 2001, but most of those were in German. One of the few English publications you'll find of Professor Philip X was written in 2013, From Warriors to Sportsmen, How Traditional Chinese Martial Arts Adapted to Modernity. It's a fantastic martial arts read, and I'm going to be bringing that to you next. It is packed with great information. For this particular piece of work, we're going to be looking at an essay, Academic Research into Chinese Martial Arts, Problems and Perspective. Filipiak writes a short essay summarizing the current state of the Chinese martial arts studies literature, and this was happening in 2013, and the challenges that they were facing. And if you also listen to Ben Junkin's keynote presentation, Kung Fu Podcast number 162, which was titled Show, Don't Tell, Make Martial Arts Studies Matter, you'll get a glimpse of what hardworking, sincere academics are facing in the field of martial studies. Some of it may surprise you. The Institutional Challenges of Research While this essay is brief, Filipiak's writing is clear and structured. His essay is divided into three sections. The first section looks at the structural and institutional challenges facing the field of Chinese martial studies. These institutional challenges can basically be summed up in a single word, tenure. It is what all young scholars need to win if they wish to become old scholars. You know, Kung Fu Podcast was started as a way of relaying hardworking academic research to you in a digestible manner, or more truthfully, in a way that I could understand it and put it in a format so that it required no FaceTime. You could, you know, go for your walk, your commute, and still be learning about Chinese martial arts research. It's not easy for academics to get institutional support to do that research. Professor Ben Junkins put in hundreds of hours of voluntary research to start producing critical academic work. 
someone like Filipiak at the time, would be facing a great uphill battle to get approvals to pursue certain studies in martial arts, even though he is a historian. Academic presses are also publishing fewer works, which makes them less likely to support projects in areas of marginal importance, like, for example, Chinese martial arts history. Blasphemy. <gasps> Furthermore, can you believe that tenure review committees often have very strong opinions about the types of research that young professors should be doing? And oddly enough, martial arts is never at the top of their list. It's just despicable. <sighs> Since the time of the original article, the situation has improved some at the institutions, but dare say studying martial arts as an aspect of cultural history is not mainstream. In fact, Ben states, quote, there are severe challenges to be overcome by, by those wishing to write and research in the area of Chinese martial studies, and they probably will not be resolved anytime soon. Still, Filipiak thinks that young scholars should continue to network around the subject of Chinese martial studies and look for new venues for their work. After this section of institutional challenges, Filipiak turns to the subject of martial arts research. He points out the fact that the entire study of Chinese martial arts is badly under-theorized in ways that are likely to be detrimental to what research is being done. Building up a basic store of ideas and shared concepts is going to be critical if we're going to move forward in the area. His thoughts in this area are spot on, according to Dr. Junkins, and anyone who is new in the field of academic research should think about them. Filipiak uh -oh. writes, quote, we need a more precise definition for what the martial arts really are. The term was originally applied to forms for fighting in East Asia, and it describes a modern phenomenon of cultural significance. Late, the impression was given that this art of fighting has a long history, with origins we can trace back to the Neolithic period. But there is a large gap between throwing stones and attacking the head with your leg. Actually, we have no idea when the Chinese martial arts began, and this problem is also related to terminology. Most people talking about Chinese martial arts have in mind popular styles such as Shaolin, Tai Chi, Bakwa, and others. They do not keep in mind that these complex systems are the products of the very late period of Chinese history. End quote. This is the very quicksand that Dr. Bowman was describing on where to draw the line. Within the academic world, you must draw lines and distinguish approaches to hash out a result that you can present, argue reliably, and by all means have validity. However, to Dr. Bowman's point, once you draw a line, you are excluding and including. Now, we're not going to solve this concern now, but that's not the point. You can see the catch-22 that we're getting into. There's the trap. Ben states Philippiak's basic point is absolutely correct. We don't know actually when the traditional Chinese martial arts began, and our poor conceptualization of what those words even mean prevent us from discovering or possibly accepting the answers to even basic questions. Now, we're going to have to circle back to when most researchers say the roots of traditional Chinese martial arts. We'll save that for a little bit later. The modern invention of martial arts. To that point, I've always found it interesting that we trying to use a Western term, martial arts, and apply that to something that didn't really exist in the Chinese culture. 
The term martial arts is a very new invention applied to Eastern culture, much like the term God is. And we discussed that in Christianity Meets Martial Arts. And in fact, most professors will tell you using the term martial arts is a 20th century invention which applied to Eastern arts. This makes a huge difference, as you're going to hear about later, because we tried to apply a line to something that may be a circle in their culture. Oh? Ben states in another article, quote, Individuals who studied martial skills would have been surprised, and in some cases even offended, to discover that they were mere martial artists. When asked about their identity, most of these people would have responded that they were professional soldiers, night watchmen, or runners for the local yeoman. Many would have been farmers who out of necessity joined a local crop-watching society. Being a respectable peasant was a much higher class occupation than being a boxing instructor or guard. Others may have been traditional medical doctors or opera performers. In a few cases, you might even encounter members of the gentry who studied boxing or archery as a form of self-cultivation and entertainment, end quote. If you'd have grouped all these individuals together and told the soldier, the farmer, the opera singer, and the gentleman that the skills they practiced were all functionally equivalent or interchangeable, they would have been very confused. The idea of martial arts terms, as we use it in contemporary conversation, is a modern construction. These things look similar to us because of our modern perspective. Indeed, many of the categories got mixed together in the early 20th century, end quote. So how will we train up-and-coming researchers? Filipiak also notes that there are a number of other problems within the literature. Very often, these have to do with the research questions that we ask, and that again alludes to Dr. Bowman's point. Why did you draw the line here and not there, and why did you approach it from this perspective instead of that one? To begin with, Filipiak notes that the Chinese martial studies is an uneven development as well. Think of cream cheese in your bagel. You have the right amount of both, but you clump all your cheese in one little section. Nothing is going to be fun and smooth about experience unless you like sloppy eating. In his opinion, too much attention is given to the Shaolin, while the subject of monastic violence in a general sense is even being ignored. He and other researchers agree. You have to learn to spread the research around, which implies the scholars must be groomed and trained so that they can spread out what they know and what they're looking for into other areas. You can see this unevenness in other areas as well. Many of China's unique fighting styles were often developed by ethnic minorities. Often, they're being ignored by the modern scholars, who focus only on the more popular styles of the Han majority. Professor Junkins tends to agree with this observation as well. He says to add more research in the area of minority and ethnic studies would be important. There are also some other limitations. For example, the preoccupation of translating the literature into English or German. But there is also another critical change that Ben Junkins recommends. It is a change in the narrative voice. Ben is an advocate for a regional approach to the study of Chinese martial arts. He states that the Chinese martial arts are, quote, best understood as a branch of local history. We need more studies focused on the provincial and even city level and fewer grand national narratives. I do not wish to be misunderstood on this point. It is not that national level events such as wars 
or changes in trade patterns aren't important. They certainly are. But each region of China had its own social, cultural, and economic institutions. And these tended to act like a prism that bends and redirects shared systemic pressures in different ways. The martial arts did not develop the same way in Shanghai that they did in Shandong. And what you see in Chengdu or Hong Kong is once again quite different. These are precisely the sort of issues that the field of Chinese martial studies should be investigating. In fact, these are the sorts of studies that can make a critical contribution to our understanding of regional and local history and identity." End quote. Chinese martial studies in the arts and humanities. Ben gives us a little insight of why a multidisciplinary approach to martial studies is critical. When describing Professor Filipiak, he says, quote, he is a historian and I am a social scientist. Historians often structure their works around making descriptive inferences. If your subject is a martial arts community, then you must describe the history of said community. Obviously, such a book will probably be of marginal interest except to a handful of practitioners. This is a challenge that a certain subset of academics face, and it's hardly unique to those who are interested in Chinese martial arts. Yet, the situation is not so dire for the rest of us, speaking about the rest of the academic field. As a social scientist, it is not my job to describe, but to explain. Most explanations are actually stories that revolve around two sorts of variables. These are independent variables, and usually there are a whole set of them, and the dependent variable, the item that is being investigated. So, if I was interested in economic growth, I might propose a theory like this. More exports lead to more economic growth. In this case, exports is my independent variable, and GDP is my dependent variable. What happens is, is that most academics write about their own pet subject, be it religion, trade, movies, or even Kung Fu. They tend to make the object of their effect the dependent variable, and that's understandable. The dependent variable is the star of the show. This approach, however, usually radically limits the appeal of the show to those who are just as interested in the same religions, the same movies, trade deals, or kung fu schools that you are. Such works also have a hard time building a large audience unless they get lucky and hit just the right subject as it happens to peak in the public consciousness. Let's think about that for a moment. Do you pigeonhole yourself when you talk about your pet subject? The reason that this is important is that if you're trying to build a school, get an audience that may find your work interesting, you've got to focus on the independent variables, not just the star of the show. For example, Kempo Karate or Choli Foot. You've got to step back a little. Or, better yet, as Ben suggests, flip it over. Quote, what if we made Chinese martial arts the independent variable instead? What if... Instead of always explaining the origins of these arts, which few scholars actually care about, we were to use our mastery of them to investigate and illustrate other facets of Chinese society that scholars do care about. For example, film, opera, and globalization. From a political science view, the rise of the martial arts as an independent social movement 
comprised of various private groups and schools in the early 20th century, could be important for understanding the slow and at times halting development of civil society in China. Chinese civil society, including both its pathologies and promise, is a hot topic among scholars right now. Social scientists are also interested in the development and future of Chinese nationalism. This is an area where a better understanding of the history of Chinese martial arts could make a difference. At the very least, it would make for an intriguing case study in a longer book. The Jingwu, Goshu, and later Wushu movements have all had explicitly national goals. Now, there are independent Kung Fu podcast episodes for almost each one of those national movements. Repeatedly, the China state has used traditional martial arts quite successfully to further its social and political agendas. Ben continues, Regional and local identity is a topic of increasing importance for China study scholars. It is no accident that the most important martial art in Hong Kong today is Wing Chun, a stubborn local style with deep connections in the Cantonese linguistic community. We said earlier that the academic press was not interested in marginal topics. Well, globalization, nationalism, regionalism, and the development of civil society are not marginal topics in the modern social sciences, especially when we're talking about China. These are the sort of topics that win grants, see conferences organized, and get books published. Those in the field of Chinese martial studies are in a very interesting position because they are well suited to comment on each and every one of these questions. Once the wider academic field is engaged in these discussions, they will be the ones demanding the more specialized martial histories. Eventually, all of that will come. The research scholars will get to write books that take the Chinese martial arts as the dependent variable. But for now, we should be concentrating on the other side of the equation, which is, how do we explain Chinese society and culture, the dependent variable, using the martial arts, the independent variable? So in these last two episodes, we have looked at how Chinese martial arts study researchers are having to organize their thoughts, get themselves prepared, and then what the battles are on the other side. How to draw a line, or to, as Ben says, flip it around. So now we're ready to tackle another question, another line. How did Chinese martial arts go from warrior training to sportsman's training? If you don't know where we're going, any road will take you there. Thank you so much for allowing me to be part of your martial arts journey. This is T.W. Smith, and I'll be talking with you real soon.